Cephas about his focus and what he wanted his disciples to focus on. So we're going to consider some passages from Matthew's Gospel that we began to look at a couple of years ago. So please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35. And you'll find that on page 974 in the church Bibles. Page 974. Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to read from verse 35. A few verses here. And as you look that up, let's just pause and ask God to speak to us through his word. Let's pray. Father, we want to acknowledge your good hand upon us. You've blessed us in so many ways. Lord, we are blessed to be gathered together with hundreds here. And we thank you that you've been kind to us to provide a, a bigger barn where we can meet. Uh, Lord, even as we, uh, people are working hard for that, would you give us strength and energy and wisdom in these final weeks of planning and preparation? But as we come now we, to you to your word we want to humble ourselves under your word we want we long that you would speak to us and that uh, by your spirit you would give us receptive ears and warm hearts and wills that determine to do your purposes in Christ's name Amen Matthew chapter 9 verse 35 Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He called his 12 disciples to him, and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. This is God's word. Now, as I said, I first gave it a go preaching this uh, back in 2014. And a few months ago, I went and spent a day with Graham Daniels of Christians in Sport. And he taught on these things. And he had some brilliant things to say. And I thought, well, let's go back have another go preaching it and adding some Dano bits. So I want to graciously acknowledge, uh, thankfully acknowledge, Graham Daniels. And if I get Welsh, it's because I'm thinking of Graham Daniels, maybe. But um, Jesus does say in Matthew's Gospel that a, a preacher of the kingdom brings out both old treasures and new. So I think that's a good text for preachers being able to re-preach material and try and improve on it. So that's what I'm going to do today. So four headings I want to work through this morning. Uh, what we have here is a man with a mission in verse 35, the motive for mission in verse 36, a theology of mission, the theology of mission in verses 37 to 38, and the strategy for mission in chapter 10, 
verse 1. And I want us to work through these verses and think about this for ourselves here at Charlotte Chapel. Let's begin there in in chapter 9, verse 35. Verse 35 is uh, a summary statement of what Jesus has been doing up to this point in Matthew's eyewitness account of his life. And Jesus is clearly a man with a mission. Uh, If you read the five chapters before this, you get the taste of what these days were like. Incredible days. Let's turn back with me to the opening summary in chapter 4, verse 23. And you'll find that on page 968. Jesus, uh, chapter 4, verse 23. I'll wait till the rustling dies down. Verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Incredible. How amazing. What would it have liked to have been there? If we could go back in time and witness these things, what would it, would have, what would it have been like to have heard Jesus teaching and preaching the good news of the kingdom? Well, you know, there aren't any YouTube clips of that. But what Matthew has done for us is he's actually said, come with me. And he's, he's able to push us through the crowd to the very front of the crowd. And he says, just sit there in front of Jesus and you're going to listen to the Sermon on the Mount. And so as you read chapters 5 to 7, we can hear what Jesus taught. We don't have to wonder, what was it like? There it is. The Sermon on the Mount, you can read what Jesus taught. And what would it have been like to have actually seen Jesus do these incredible miracles? How extraordinary. Well, we've got something akin to a reality TV program. Because what he's done is he's actually got the camera on Jesus up close, actually healing these individuals. And you can read about that in chapters 8 to 9. He gives you a a sampling of some of the healings, the incredible miracles that Jesus achieved. And you can read that in chapters 8 to 9. And after he's done that, he he pulls back, and we're back to chapter 9, verse 35 now. He pulls back, and he says, well, he wants us to realize that Jesus did more than preach one sermon and do a few healing miracles. Back to our summary verse of chapter 9, 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. By the way, if you're new to these things and you, and you think, okay, here's eyewitness accounts that Jesus really did all this, you've got to think, who is this? Who's the identity of this person? Who is it that can heal every sickness, every disease in the way that Jesus did? 
Our doctors can't do that. Even with all the technology of today, we can't do that. He could. It's got to make you think, isn't it? Who is it? The identity of this person. Undoubtedly, here's a man with a mission. Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century, records that Galilee was actually a thickly populated area at this time, comprising of about 204 towns, none of which had a population less than 15,000 people. A lot of people. And everywhere that Jesus went, there were large crowds of people. I love having a building, but let's notice that Jesus went all over the place. Uh, David Porteous prayed in the, in the side room, a beautiful prayer, that remembering how Jesus taught on the hillside. He taught from a boat. He taught from town to town. He went all over the place preaching the gospel. I love a building, but let's not get fixated about the building. Jesus went everywhere teaching, preaching, the good news of the kingdom. Now, what motivated Jesus to conduct such an extensive and exhausting campaign of activity? Well, there's a motive in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had what? What's the word? A bit more conviction? Compassion. Compassion on them. Let's think about that. What do you see as you walk around your high school? What do you see as you walk around your college campus? What do you see as you walk around this beautiful city of Edinburgh? As you attend the concerts or uh, join the football stadiums at Hibs or Hearts or watch rugby at Murrayfield? What do you see as you look at the crowds? I don't know about you, but I, what I see are lots of people who seem to have their lives together. By and large, I see a lot of wealthy people, kind of sophisticated people, because it's Edinburgh, isn't it? You know, well-educated people, smart, intelligent. I see a lot of wealthy people. I see some really smart cars driving around. I see people who've got their lives together. And if that's all we, will see, we see, we will never engage in the mission of Jesus. As a church, we will only focus on what really counts when we see people as Jesus sees them. What does he see? Verse 36, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You've got to be careful when you walk your dog in the Pentlands, uh, especially at lambing season. Get lots of warning signs because for some reason, I know my dog Bronte, she loves the smell of sheep. Gets very excited. And dogs will go pelting after sheep and these sheep, they just scatter everywhere and they're helpless, harassed and helpless against a dog with sharp teeth. And that's just a little... That's a little working cocker spaniel. Do you know what I mean? Wolves rip sheep to shreds. And that's what Jesus sees. That, that the people, the crowds, they're like sheep without a shepherd. 
a leaderless people who are cast down, easy prey for others to abuse and take advantage for, helpless against those who would enslave and abuse them, lost and separated from God because of their sin and facing eternal condemnation. Apart from Jesus Christ, people are ruined and wrecked. We see together people, don't we? We see people who are wealthy and doing fine. What we need to realize is spiritually that they're mangled and wrecked and ruined. Do we see the true state of people? Do you know, in my experience, when I meet successful people and we get to know them and they let their guard down, they really get to let you get to know them, you discover that even if people are I've got nice, comfortable, middle-class lives that their life is full of struggles and hurt and pain. People are spiritually lost without Christ. The people at your school, most of them are lost, aren't they? Lost. Walk around university campus, the most, most of the people you're going to see, lost. Walk around this city, hundreds of thousands of lost people. Sheep without a shepherd. Now that phrase, sheep without a shepherd, is, is used a number of times in the Old Testament to indicate the failure of the national leadership in Israel. But you know what? God promised that he would himself come to shepherd his people. That he would have compassion on them. Scattered and and bruised flock. He would come to save them. What shepherdless people need is someone who will teach them the truth and point them to the shepherd that can save them. And that's why Jesus went from place to place. All those towns teaching in their synagogues and preaching the good news of the kingdom. Our sin separates us from God. It damages us. And so scattered, damaged people need to hear the good news of the kingdom that there is a way back to God. There is a way back to the shepherds. There is a way of restored relationship. There is a way where our sins can be forgiven, there's a way that our lives can be redeemed and freed from our enslavements, where we can be transformed. They need someone to tell them what the Bible has to say. What this lost city needs is people who will say, have you ever... Have you ever looked at the Bible? Would you like, would you, can we just sit down? Would you, can I show you something from the Bible? Can, do you know about Jesus? Have you ever heard someone give a talk about Jesus? Would you, would you look at the Bible with me? Can I show you about Jesus? See, this good news of the kingdom, which Jesus proclaimed in his words, he demonstrated in action by his healing ministry. I don't believe that the Bible teaches us that we have the power to heal everybody's diseases and make people wealthy. I think that's a false gospel. 
But what we see in the healing miracles of Jesus is the demonstration of what the kingdom of God will be like when it comes in its fullness. When the kingdom of God comes fully, this will be a world without disease, suffering, and sin. And he, de- he demonstrates that. And it was the compassion of Jesus Christ that led him to courageously die upon a cross in order to achieve salvation and to achieve this forgiveness for all who would enter his kingdom, for all who would come and put their trust in him. In John's gospel, he speaks to himself, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. This is who Jesus is. He says, you know what? I have sheep who are not in my flock. And he's dying to save them. He's calling them into his flock. He knows his sheep by name. So that all who trust Jesus as their Savior can know the words of Psalm 23 that Sito read to us earlier. The Lord is my shepherd. Can you think of any more precious thing to say? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a place, a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is what it means to know Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, as your King. To say he is my shepherd. He is the one who provides, who leads us, who restores our souls. He is the shepherd who guides us, who will never leave us. Even in the darkest moments of fear and despair, he is with us. Even as we face death, we do not need to fear. Goodness and love will follow us. Ultimate security. What an amazing thing to have Jesus as your shepherd king. Is he your shepherd king? if you're not sure turn to him today come to the prayer team afterwards come to me, ask me you don't need me, you just can turn to him say say, I'm sorry for the wrong things I've done I'm sorry for the mess I've made in my life would you forgive me Lord Jesus because of dying for me and and I put my trust in you and Father would you forgive me and receive me into your kingdom And, and and he be your king, your shepherd today. It is tragic not to have Jesus as your king. It's the opposite to Psalm 23. What's it like to live this life where the Lord is not your shepherd? Well, it is to say, the Lord is not my shepherd. I am in terrible want. There is no security. There's no real direction in my life. I'm wandering in the dark. And when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear will grip and take hold of me, for I'm completely on my own. And there is no hope that I will dwell in the house of the Lord at all. How terrible. Do we look on the crowds and feel pity 
for they're like sheep without a shepherd. Now, in truth, at times we do see this, don't we? We do see this, and it does move us. And there are times we pray for people and we're concerned for them, but if we're honest, it's limited, isn't it? We lose sight of this. And the truth is, if, if this all depended on our prayers and our compassion, our effort alone, people would actually be stuffed. But I want to encourage us to see today, it is Christ's compassion. The risen Lord Jesus Christ still has a deep and constant compassion for those who are lost, shepherdless sheep. He really does care about us. He cares about our unsaved family members, our neighbors, our work colleagues, our city, our nation. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know, here's a trustworthy message that's deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Here's the Father heart of God. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The mission of Christ is motivated by the compassion of Christ. And that becomes even clearer as we understand the theology of mission that we see in verses 37 and 38. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Consider the significance of that little phrase, his harvest field. Whose harvest is it? It's God's harvest, isn't it? Jesus invites the disciples to see what he sees as he looks at the crowds of people. And he invites them to actually see the opportunity and challenge it presents. It's a plentiful harvest. But the big problem is simply that there are not enough workers to gather in the harvest. So what's the solution? Strategic planning, evangelism training, recruit some evangelists, preachers, start ministry apprenticeship programs. I think all of that is good and we're working on it. But it's secondary, isn't it? What's the first step? Pray. Pray. It is his harvest field. And so the first thing is to pray to the Lord of the harvest. Ask him to send out workers. Now, in the original language, that word sent out is used elsewhere of Jesus casting out evil spirits from people. Evil spirits, reluctant to leave, Jesus casts them out. Right? And that's the word that's used to pray to the Lord of Harvest that he would send out, cast out. Um, it's as if the workers are there 
but they're not doing the job. So ask that God would give them a kick up the backside. This is the, the message version. It's not actually. Eugene Peterson is much more poetic than that. Get them harvesting. Ask the Lord of the harvest to get the workers moving and get harvesting. Harvesting, working in the fields, effort, work, sweat, time, energy. And when we are following Jesus and we read his word, we see that it's not enough to simply take care of our work and our interests, but that Jesus calls us to engage in in his work, the Lord's work, the Lord's harvest. And so we need to ask the Lord of the harvest to cast out laborers to be about work in his harvest field. I love the Shanwick Place building. But the Shandwick Place building alone will not bring in his harvest. We've invested in a building for it to be a house of prayer. To call upon the Lord of the harvest. For it to be a place that feeds and equips us, us, to go out into the towns and villages and regions of this city, into our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our recreations, into the shops, as workers to gather in his harvest. We've invested in this building to fulfill the purpose of the great commission and the great commandment, that we would glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For this building to house God's people who are part of a missionary movement to reach Scotland and the world. This is a mission station. It's a lifeboat to rescue drowning people. It's a hospital for the cure of people's souls. It's a greenhouse for maturing fruitful disciples. It's a training center to deploy church planters, evangelists. Now, compared to the size of the harvest, the workers are few. And so let's pray that there would be more and more who will see the crowds with the compassion of Christ and who give themselves to living in this city in a way that connects lost people with the good news of Jesus Christ. I I find it fascinating because Jesus could have said, pray that lots will get saved. But he doesn't say that. He says, pray that there'll be more workers. Each morning as we head out from our house this week, could I ask you to pray this prayer for our church family here at Charlotte Chapel. Lord, please send out workers from Charlotte Chapel into your harvest field. Lord, please send out workers from Charlotte Chapel into your harvest field. Praise God, that's been the truth of Charlotte Chapel for many years. Mustn't stop with, with our generation. Let's pray. Lord, please send out workers from Charlotte Chapel into your harvest field. Is the harvest plentiful today? We often feel like it's not, don't we? But perhaps we've lost sight 
of the way that Jesus taught his disciples to go about the work of gospel mission. What if the, gospel, if the harvest is plentiful if we do it the way that Jesus tells us to do it? Well, we're going to think more about that next week in Matthew chapter 10. Because the strategy of Jesus in chapter 10 verse 1 is he, uh, he says to his disciples, see these crowds, just pray to the Lord of the harvest. And then, and then he says to them, go. There's a strategy. You pray. And then, I, guess what, boys? You go. And we're going to think about that next week. But before I close today, let me share something that will hopefully free us in this task. Because I know it's just one of these things we often feel, I don't know, we often feel guilt about it, don't we? We know we kind of should, and I don't know, it doesn't quite happen, and uh, we mess it up, and we don't think we're very good at it, and you know, I've asked my four friends, and they didn't want to come, and well, what do I do next? You know, I've, I've run out of, op- you know, that, there's, no, there's no one else. So we're going to tackle that next week. But uh, let's, let's remind us of the beauty of this phrase, that it is his harvest. If it's his harvest, it's not my harvest. It's not your harvest. When Christ sends us into his mission to gather his harvest, then guess what? We don't have to be the guru. You don't have to be the expert who can answer every apologetic question that anyone might conceivably have. You don't have to be the one who can brilliantly debate all the atheistic points, knows all the worldviews of other major religions and has a brilliant understanding of philosophy. Because you're not the guru. It's his harvest. We're not the Lord of the harvest. Now when we get this, it means that it takes away pride and despair so if if things are going well you know and there's lots of people coming to church and uh, a few people get saved we can think oh look at us look at our church we've got it together look at the harvest we're bringing in no that's stupid isn't it When we understand it's his harvest, there's no room for arrogance, no room for acting like we're something special to other people. It's his harvest. And and what if you're in an area and you've lived there for a number of years and you've talked to your friends and so forth and nothing much seems to happen. There's been conversations, people are warm, but they've not yet become Christians yet. Or maybe you've been praying for your kids for years and years and years and your children are still not trusting Christ and it is an agony for your soul well, my friend, if it's, if, it's, if it's our harvest, it's all our fault, isn't it? If you're the Lord of the harvest, then it's all your fault that people aren't becoming Christians. But he is the Lord of the harvest. So there's no room for despair. We're called to be faithful, engaged in the work that he's given us to do, And the results of the harvest is up to him. I think that's wonderfully freeing. I really do. I know that we're here because Christ is calling his sheep into his flock. I know the reason that the judgment day hasn't happened yet is that there are so many people in this city 
who need this precious gospel. And God is going to save people in this city. That's what, that's what the, how the Lord encouraged Paul, didn't he? When Paul's feeling discouraged after seeing uh, uh, terrible things happen in the city, he was getting rough and the Lord encouraged him, I have many people in this city. I think that's why the Lord's enabled us to buy the building and refurbish it and go there because he's got many people he wants us to reach in this city. Do we believe in the sovereignty of God or not? Do we believe that God is seeking after people? He's the one with compassion. He is the Lord of the harvest. It is his harvest field. I personally know two men who share a similar story. They grew up in atheistic families and they were convinced atheists themselves. And one, the stories are slightly different, but essentially it's a similar story. One day they woke up and had this thought, God is there and I need to know him. Wouldn't it be amazing if God could be a part of my life? And they walked into the door of a church, heard the word preached, and for one man, it took a, a, a year, and he became a Christian. Another man, it was weeks, if that. Isn't that amazing? How do you explain that? It's his harvest field. He's at work. We don't have to go out there and create something from nothing. He's already at work in people's lives. How exciting. What's he going to do through us? Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Send out more workers from Charlotte Chapel into your harvest field, Lord. Would you pray that with me this week, every day this week as you leave your house? Let's pray.